Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest today is Darren Reed, paramedic, former fire chief, and private security contractor. Darren, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here, Scott. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule, and I know you do have a busy schedule. Um, <laughs> even if you say you don't, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to be that way once in a while. <laughs> right? Um <laughs> So, uh, hey, Darren, um, you have an interesting uh, background and past that led you to uh, the career path that you chose uh, before getting out. Uh, If you will, for the folks, uh, uh, tell us what you were doing, what you did uh, prior to becoming a private security contractor overseas. And what were the events that led you to the point that you said, yeah, that's what I want to do? Well, yeah, my history is probably going to be a little bit different than most everybody else who heads overseas. So it's it's some of it was by chance and fate and whatnot. But now it uh, when was it 2010? We had a housing market crash, and I was working as a uh, acting fire chief of a department, and all of a sudden the money went away. We we're trying to save what we could, but it looked like we we're going to lay off about 17% of our force. Well, I was hanging out back at the National Fire Academy, and a friend of mine said, you know what, there's a gig over in uh, Afghanistan, and it's with a medical company, and they need uh, medics over there for the clinics. So it's basically a remote medicine type medic gig with a a DOD contract, and I kind of played with the idea a little bit, always uh, always wanted to, always interested in Afghanistan from, you know, when the Soviets were there, and... and, uh, Got their butts kicked and watched it on the news and always kind of intrigued by it. And I didn't think much of it until all of a sudden we started to lose all the money. So I, I sat down with my advisor over there and said, here's my game plan. I, uh, I may just do a soft retirement, head over there and spend a year or two and work as a contractor until the economy, economy gets a bit better. And uh, my advisor said, do it. Sounds like a hell of a plan. So I did. I packed up in 2000 and I think it was 11, and uh, did my first uh, tour there with a uh, contracting company. Okay. Now, was that uh, – that was a private contract that you were on, your first one over there. Is that correct? Correct. Um, it was through Log Cap 5, and it was a standard – we were replacing all the Bosnian doctors and all the FOBs over there. Um, they wanted medics instead. They wanted, uh, you know, basically Americanized medicine. And that's where they picked up around 45 um, paramedics to do that routine from the States. My job was to manage it and coordinate uh, all of them out in cops and FOBs and bases and whatnot. And okay. So, so, you, so your first contract was with a private entity. And uh, I won't mention that unless you want to mention the uh, specific entity. And if you don't, we totally understand. There's uh, aside from oh, NDAs, there, there's there's probably OPSEC. But uh, if you can, um, yeah, if you want to, uh, what was the company you worked for? Yeah, first gig was with uh, called Occupare International, and they were subcontracted through Fleur Government Group, and their job was to get the paramedics. Now it didn't last that way. We soon uh, were soon to realize that. Uh, they uh, were contracted out to find the paramedics, and the minute we got the baseline uh, there on boots on the ground, uh, Fleur went ahead and dissolved the contract with the Occupare and hired all of us directly, which was fine. It was a pay increase, 
So I had no complaints about that. <laughs> and we're now floor employees. Okay. Or I should say contractors. Right. Yeah. And, and there is a there is a there is a big difference between being an employee and a contractor or subcontractor. Oh yeah. Right. Um, and so now people when they think of private security contractors, they probably don't often, if they even think of it, think of medics and paramedics. But they play a crucial role, um, not only here in the United States, but outside, especially on uh, government contracts. I mean, uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to give my spiel on it, but can you explain to people, you know, what is what types of roles you guys play uh, when you're overseas? And, and, and just, you know, I mean, what do you guys do? What what makes you guys so valuable? Why I mean, I know why we need you, but explain to people why you guys are, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we're out there in the remote, remote areas. So go ahead. Tell us what, tell us why paramedics are so important over there. Well, I've done four definitively different contracts overseas, uh, five, I guess. And the one common denominator is medic. And it's one of the short shortages that they have for any type of contract, private military, general contracting. Everyone needs a medic. Finding a qualified medic is a whole nother issue. Back on this first one is, is Floor was getting rid of the doctors and um, they don't have doctors there. So by log cap contracting standards, the contractor has to maintain all of its own personnel. You can't rely on military resources. If a contractor who does HVAC gets sick, they can't go down uh, to the TMC or to a Craig Joint Theater Hospital and say, hey, I, I need some antibiotics or I need an x-ray. When you're in country, you're supposed to take care of your own. And that was our job. We basically operated clinics, 24-hour um, day dock in the boxes. And that's what we did. Now, that's the standard stuff. We had maybe 20,000 contractors from all over the world, from Bosnia to Kenya, um, to Philippines and, and Americans, you name it, we had them all over the place. They'd come in, and if they were part of your contract, you would treat them. And we started off that way at first, and then things kind of grew. Military needed some more assistance. So when there's incoming, uh, any type of potential threat, we started staffing ambulances as well. So um, <clears throat> Army medics, uh, six, eight whiskeys would go out and do the response, but then we would uh, throw on some battle rattle and stand by in case uh, all hell breaks loose and, and back them up. Because once, you know, under an attack, you know, FOB or a cop, you can take all hands. And if there's a U.S. medic there, they're going to put them into the fold. And that's that's what happened for my first uh, tour out there was supporting the glog cap and then also supporting the U.S. military as far as a medical response and, and clinical response. If a contractor was injured, our job was also to expedite, get them out of country so I didn't uh, tie up uh, military resources. Because if you're critical... Uh, the, the hospital will see you. They'll, they'll take care of you, but we need to fly you out as soon as possible. And logistically, that, uh, that takes a little bit of effort, making sure you're stable, getting flights that can come into the country. And then if you're injured in a FOB, our own people, how do you get them from point A to point B? Everyone knows that you're supposed to be 100% healthy when you go downrange. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that, uh, yeah, no, that, that's not always the case. We, <laughs> we've got people with chronic illnesses. We've, how, how long have you had? Uh, cardiac issues my whole life when, when did you have a bypass and why in the hell are you in country with a heart bypass <laughs> so it's it's nothing simple as it should be and you know they lie through their teeth some of them 
So we're, we're there to help be that liaison for the military and also assist with them for anything that happens on bases. Okay, so you guys were, uh, in terms of medical stuff, um, you were the primary point of contact for contractors uh, for everything from sniffles to breaks, fractures, cuts, lacerations, you name it. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And you guys had your own facilities separate from military and government facilities, correct? Correct. Okay. And now, now your facilities were were the, the equipment and the gear you needed to do your job. That was provided by you, the contractors, the company, the government. Who provided all that stuff? Who paid for it? You know, one thing I learned is every contracting company has a little bit different contract with the military, DOD or whoever happens to be handling the things at the time. And we ordered all of our equipment through Medlarg, and the U.S. Army handled that. And we had our own number to order equipment through. And that, that worked well. I mean, the same places, I mean, this, the same method that the uh, military hospitals would acquire all their medical equipment uh through logistics and, and whatnot, we would use the same exact system and order through them, which worked out great, uh, except one day when we got in trouble, they, they actually canceled all of our purchasing capabilities. You know, we'd ordered millions of dollars worth of stuff because we, you know, we handled everything, including vaccinations in country and all the people that were contracted through, we had to make sure to maintain they were vaccinated. Well, we got all that through the military. And then I had uh, five wonderful gentlemen, captains, uh, sit me and one other person down and say, hey, uh, we just went through all the logs here. Come to find out you've been ordering millions of dollars worth of stuff and you haven't paid for it. Well, that would be correct. Well, you can't do that. You know, we get the jag on the phone. Well, that's just spectacular. All right. So what's going on? And they, you know, everybody else, Triple Canopy, DynCore, they've got to pay for their supplies. Well, we knew what this was going to be about. That's real simple. We had 500 pages of a contract. We showed them one page and said, hey, this one says here, you guys sign the contract. We don't pay for the supplies. That's how we operate in country. It's all on you folks. And they kind of paused for a minute and they said, all right, thanks for coming and playing. Uh, We'll talk to you later. Within 24 hours, we're back on board ordering supplies. Yeah, you might want to look at the whole contract before you call us in. You know, I don't know what they thought they were going to make world news for busting poor little contractor out there. But uh, that's how we got our equipment, <clears throat> medical supplies, <laughs> you name it. Everything was through Medlog. Okay. So uh, now, so in terms of medical stuff, that, that, that became basically a non-issue. I mean, they, they, somebody, if you guys needed the equipment or the gear to, to, to um, put stuff back on the shelves so you could treat people, th- uh, it didn't take long for people to figure out we're going to get it done. Now, what about other personal items or other equipment and gear that we uh, typically falls under, say, PPE. Um, Everything from maybe your weapons to your accessories to your clothing, uh, stuff that you guys wore, uh, whether you were there on the base or you're out running around off the base. uh, How did that work for you? Did did you guys get the same stuff that that, uh, other contractors got? And, And were you given the opportunity to get your own if you didn't like what they gave you no yes maybe that depends <laughs> and sometimes but don't tell anybody <laughs> right. um, it, it all depends on which contract we're talking about here uh the first contract that i did i was a fobbit i didn't i didn't leave the damn uh base I, or if i did i would just hop on green air or or 
or contractor air and just fly around to different cops and bases and fobs and do my thing. But, you know, if we went outside the wire, we'd be fired instantly. Um, so battle rattle. Yeah, we were given the, the worst, most pathetic black um, plate carriers with nice little skip plates uh, from, I think, the Korean War, maybe that. Uh, here you go. Have at it. Well, I lobbied and I said, you know what, can we get something that's at least within 15 years? We are your unarmed um, medics that respond uh, either by helicopter or, or uh, by ground with ambulances to attacks. Maybe we should have something that's more fitting towards us. And they, they finally, in the end, agreed. And this is our own logistics through Flora that we should probably have better gears and uh, the rest of the population. So some things we, you know, we had to beg, borrow, and steal to get. Clothing, yeah, no, we're, that's all on our own. So I was definitely 1022 with 511 gear, and that was pretty much uh, what we wore for that contract. Okay. Now, when you guys, uh, now you, you worked other contracts. So uh, let's focus, and you can, <laughs> well, I'm just saying, let, uh, in terms of uh, contracts where you were working outside the wire or you had the opportunity, whether it was by yeah. air or ground, <clears throat> on foot, vehicle, what have you, were you, there were contracts or times that you were running around or attached to, even if only briefly because you had to go get somebody, as part of, say, a team of guys that were knuckle draggers, you know, the shooters, but you also had to have at least some skill in those towards those uh, TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and you were armed going out uh, maybe to do your paramedic thing if something happened to the team of guys you were with. Um, can you uh, <coughs> expound on that? Yeah. That one's a, a, a bit more complicating. I'll try not to run you down to a rabbit hole too terribly long here. <laughs> but uh, I'm what you might call a bit of an accident about how things happened. I mean, I've, I've never been in the military, never been in law enforcement, um, medic and, and, and an operational medic, more, of a, you know, high angle healer rescue, um, medevac medic, uh, all, all in a civilian world. So I went downrange and I had the fire chief thing going for me. So they put me in charge of some stuff. And well, how I got from each contract was was definitely a, a test to the fact that, you know, you hire people, you know, and you can look at 100 resumes and they'll never get hired. But you'd rather hire somebody who you've worked with and you know they can do it. And that's pretty much how I ran my um, career in, in a way of contracting. Uh simply working for Fleur, it was, what was it? It was a 10-year anniversary for um, uh, OBL as far as, uh, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, as far as the attacks are concerned. And they were hitting us pretty hard for about 16 hours. And we had multiple casualties, three uh, local national KIAs. And, you know, we we're busy. They, they call the civilians out to help out. Well, that's the first time in my life I had anyone shooting at me. And it was small arms fire. And, you know, we're running around trying to take care of some of the injured and I'm doing a fast jog for cover at one point. Now, I wasn't the smartest person there. I, I ran behind my Tahoe engine block for cover and the army captain was in charge of a detail at the ECP runs and hides in front of the uh, MRAP. So <laughs> personal note taken, hide behind the big armored thing, not behind the uh, Tahoe. So I learned something there and I, I did ask the talk. I said, how do I sound on the radio? 
he just laughed at me because I'm running as this whole thing's happening, saying all units shelter in place, taking small arms fire, blah, 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 things they don't teach you about in chief school. <laughs> so somebody's laughing at me there. And I go, sir? And they look at me and they go, Doc, what, what, what'd you do? What was your MOS, the military? I go, it wasn't. Are you a cop? No. He laughs again at me and he goes, okay, we'll talk later. So <laughs> this guy ends up, he goes, you know, I can train people to do shit out in the fields and, and uh, to be ready for stuff. But uh, he goes, we're taking small arms fire and you're just laughing. I'm sorry. He was laughing. I, I was pissed is what I was. <laughs> and uh, he said, so, uh, you know, you ought to consider this. You want to work for the embassy as a uh, diplomatic security. We need some uh, uh, PSS medics. And I was like, all right, sure. It sounds like fun. And uh, I applied for the whole routine. I went home on leave and I knocked on the sheriff's door. We were friends when I was the fire chief. He was the uh, police chief. And I said, hey, I, I got a favor. I'm going to switch jobs. I'm going to go work for a company called Aegis. And apparently I'm going to be diplomatic security there in Kabul. He goes, well, good. That sounds a little on the dangerous side, though. Uh, what do you need from me? I go, I need you to teach me how to shoot. <laughs> Just kind of laughs. And I go, you know, I got to like, you know, I can hunt ducks with a shotgun. I had an SKS, and I don't think I've ever filed, fired a pistol before. So I said, I might need a little help here. So he walks me through. He takes me to his range master for the sheriff's department. So we go in there, and they hand me a <clears throat> AR-15 and go through some basics. And thank God, I'm a decent medic. I mean, that's that's where I pretty much uh, why I get hired is is I, I know what to do when the shit hits the fan. I don't run or panic or anything like that. So. Fortunately, I qualified. Uh, they spent about three hours with me, and he says, you know, Doc, you, you, you change your mags like an epileptic monkey in a, in a rainstorm, but uh, <laughs> it, you just qualified for the SWAT team. So mm. you're, you're sandbagging. Go out there and have fun. I'm like, cool. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I didn't get PSS. I got NPSS as a medic over there. So they uh, packed me up, did my whips training, and off I went and did a whole different world that I wasn't quite used to. And again, you're kind of a fobbit. You're running around back and forth in uh, armored vehicles between Salvin and the embassy. And um, then I was later stationed uh, somewhere else a little closer to the embassy, so I have to deal with that routine. But uh, so that was my next phase of this whole routine. And yeah, they supplied everything. Uh, we were short on medical supplies, unfortunately. They, uh, I don't think someone planned on having all the appropriate medical supplies for the clinic because we had to treat our own people. At the embassy, all, all of the, uh, you know, your, your shooters, your, everyone from Aegis, you had to treat with our own clinic, and we didn't have anything there. So the outgoing company was our armor group, and uh, they didn't leave a whole lot for us. <clears throat> and uh, we finally had to beg, borrow, and steal, literally, run around to try to get equipment from other places uh, in country, other bases, and we got enough to survive for a while, and then finally a connex showed up medical supplies so i remember running around we had to uh escort the doctor because he goes you know what we need to we need to find some place in country to do a cat scan in case one of our peoples are injured well why don't we just do it at the clinic we don't have one well why don't we just do it at the military hospital or the nato hospital well we don't know if we can get in okay these are problems <laughs> and so myself and one other is supposed to do a you know a psd detail the NPSS medic is supposed to do a PSD detail with a doctor outside the wire. All right, cool. I can do that. Yeah. Weapons? Well, yeah, we don't have any. Okay. Another problem. And I said, well, what the hell are we supposed to do? He goes, look armed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okey dokey. 
So we're supposed to look armed and protect the doctor trying to find medical. We, we toured every hospital there. Trust me, great people don't want to get injured. It, it, yeah, it looked like it was something from 1950. So we're running around doing that routine. At first, the doctor, bless his heart, he, uh, he, he goes into one of the Haji shops. He says, I want to buy all these clothes for these two guys. I want them to blend in with the public. <laughs> two shop owners just kind of look at us and we're like, what the hell? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're not going to dress us up and try to blend in with the public. You'll get us killed. So that was my uh, welcome to reality for the uh, uh, contracting in that venue. With the uh, That was a DOS contract with Aegis. So that was a bit entertaining. I mean, it, it, uh, it could have gone worse, I'm sure. I mean, I'm still walking and talking. Right. <laughs> now, uh, for uh, something I probably should have mentioned in the beginning, uh, you and I do know each other uh, prior to this uh, this interview. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And uh, I'm I don't I think when you and I first met, if I'm not mistaken, we don't need to mention, you know, details, <laughs> but we met at an airport and we were both flying to the same project uh, on the East Coast for an EP gig. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, and that was just – I think that was just before you started your uh, DOS career because you and I also attended a um, a firearms course um, uh, by ferry from where we live. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. That's what they called a law enforcement snipers training course, which a seven-day course is kind of hard to call it a snipers course. But, <laughs> yeah, DDM, I mean, you know, shoot within 50 meters course, something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting course, and uh, uh, I, I, I just want to say, just uh, to get it out there, uh, not all jobs, not all contracts, not all people are the same. And just so that everybody hears this, uh, Darren, <laughs> you're one of the few guys I've met that didn't have a military background, it didn't have a contractor background, that when we met um, and we got over to where we were on the East Coast here in the States – um, I found you to be one of the most real grounded guys that was part of that team. That was amazing. So <laughs> it well, doesn't surprise that. me that you made it Oconus. doesn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> well, if I had applied on paper for any of the other jobs that I picked up, they would have laughed hysterically. But, um, yeah, what was it? The Department of State dude, uh, the RSO, I asked him one day. I said, so why do you hire us old dudes? I mean, you know, there's some plenty of gunslingers running around here. And he just looks at me and he goes, because you old dudes still want to live. You want to spend the money. He says, when, when, everyone else wants to get into the shit. You guys want to do a tactical retreat with your principal head back to the compound. And, and you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, hell yeah. I mean, duh. Right. Well, and, <laughs> so, and, and, it, and that's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I think one of the uh, great many mis- myths and misconceptions out there, uh, particularly when it comes to private security contractors working outside the U.S., is that, um, you know, wild-eyed crazy, we want to fight, shoot, kill people. And when there might be some guys like that, but for the most part, we don't want guys with that mentality. We want to do, when when the bullets start flying, we want to do what you just said. We want to get off the X, get the principal and the rest of the team out of harm's way and get to where we're going. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the British guys didn't understand it a little bit when, he, when he, I worked for Aegis. They didn't like civilian docks. They, uh, well, when the shit hits the fan, you're going to run. You know, we don't we don't trust you. You haven't been in it. And I, why waste your time with them? They have no idea what I've done or haven't done or whatever else. So I wasn't worried about it at all whatsoever. 
and that's that's a nice segue into that. It was during our training that we had over there. One of the guys uh, um, comes up and he goes, Doc, wh- who do you work for? I said, I, I'm working for Aegis down in, in A-Stan. He's like, huh, you want to work for the Afghans? I thought about it for about half a second. And it was, it was boring there at the embassy, to be honest with you. <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right, cool. So <laughs> there you go. There, there's detail number three. <clears throat> so right, that now, was, uh, <laughs> is ahead. that – I mean that was now that was at that training course that you uh, identified as the uh, seven day sniper course. Is that yeah yeah okay? That was there. And, and I think I know who you're talking about. We we won't mention that particular company's name that he was formerly a member of. Um, but uh, yeah, they were some pretty interesting guys, weren't they? Oh yeah, I mean there's there's all types in this business, and um, there's some great guys with some stuff that you hope you never ever ever have to go through that they lived through it and. Uh, and there are right. some guys who are the other guys that you don't want to have to live with. <laughs> you hope it doesn't happen when you're around <laughs> yeah. them, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, with that, uh, you know, without getting into any bloody details, um, you, you pick and choose. Uh, is there an incident or a time overseas on the ground that stands out that you remember for whatever reason uh, that you would like to share with people? Yeah, that would be the entire year I worked for the Afghans outside the wire. All right, let's go with it. <laughs> well, don't tell – we don't need the yeah. whole year, but <laughs> – Careful what you ask for. All right. Uh, that one, I, when we uh, demobbed on that one year later, uh, it's probably six months to a year later, I sat back, reflected, and thought, holy shit. That probably wasn't my most intelligent move. Well, we, we could have been dead 14 times over. Uh, that was uh, – I enjoyed it. I mean, of all my details I've done over there, that was the best one. I mean, you're you're outside the wire. It's four Americans, one from a territory of Canada, and you're doing what? You've got 350 Afghan protection and police forces that you're advisors for. Well, you're teaching them everything from how to use their weapons uh, to how to do uh, – um, secondary security positions or defense positions, how to do ECP um, vetting uh, um, ECP clearances and whatnot. I mean, the whole thing, I mean, you're it and you're also protection detail for everybody, every NATO person that's employed, the military people that are there. Uh, You've got, uh, I'd say we had five depots that we had, oversight of because these forces protected the people at the depots and these depots supplied the u.s military and and nato forces with everything from food to repairing their armored vehicles and you're in charge of the defenses for these places and these are damn near soft targets i mean we've we've known of several that were taken out uh, by insurgents and they, they know what we can do and can't do as far as our capabilities so it's a little bit hairy and um realizing that after the fact is, I mean, we did our best. I mean, we did everything we could to uh, make sure everyone was safe. But when you're cruising along uh, between uh, Kabul and Bagram on the back roads, uh, the old highway trying to get back and forth, I mean, you're just a sitting duck. Um, so those that was probably the, the most potential, but I learned the most of that. I mean, that one year outside the wire with them was, was an experience that, uh, I mean, I'd probably still be there. If the Afghan government hadn't uh, decided that, well, you know what, we don't like private military anyway. We're going we're gonna to take your weapons away and and we'll just let you hang out like that. 
okay, yeah, no, no. I mean, you showered with your pistol with you, and you showered in the back of a shower just in case. I, I have a dreaded fear of getting cacked sitting on the toilet, so uh, my pistol is always sitting there in my underwear just, just in case. You don't turn on the fan because you don't want anyone to know that you're in the bathroom. Little things like that. You just, you know, you're, you're this green on blue routine is, you know, I trust every single one of them until I do something that's not good. So anyway, as far as a single event, she's always, I mean, I, I, I can't think of a single event. We had a, a V bid go off and we were waiting for the second V bid to show up and they got to fly us in supplies and said, Hey, here you go. Um, okay. No, actually no way. I take that all back. <clears throat> so we're in, we're in near Bath. And there's a huge complex outside of BAP. It's a refrigeration complex. The uh, 6 8 Whiskeys call it a Kmart, uh, Walmart. Yeah, it's Walmart. It's huge. <laughs> All the food supplies for the whole area are there. And <clears throat> we get this call that um, the base has been overran by 25 Afghans with AK 47s. Well, the base is only half completed. So what the heck are you going to do? I mean, the security was just not there, yet we still decided to occupy the bloody thing beforehand. So the uh, the expats were there calling up, talk, called the talk, and they said, we need a response. We need, a, we need help fast. So our QRF team consisted of the five of us and one armored vehicle and uh, the weapons we got from uh, the Afghans, which were, you know, AK-47s that the Soviets dropped uh fleeing for their lives uh, at the end of the war there so we go bombing down the road to take care of this whole mess and we get to the ecp and i asked the commander in charge and i said who in the hell why why did you let 25 afghans in to the compound well they were armed <laughs> okay that's a good reason to let them in uh <laughs> he goes they're not no no they're not insurgents they're uh they're just uh, local villagers i go all right cool why are they armed coming in to cause problems? He says, they want to get paid. You're shitting mm, me. Yeah, mm. they haven't been paid for four months. Right. Okay, that's bad. Right. So finally we realized, and they had been putting Soviet mines out, you know, so we can see them in front of our ECP. They're just as threats, you know, so we call a couple bomb squad in. Anyway, they're inside. They're just wanting to get paid because the uh, Afghan contractor hadn't paid them yet. And I told them, I said, you know what? And these are to the people running the whole show. You guys are our biggest security threat right then and there. They burnt down Supreme's building for something similar, from what we're told. Mm. Just pay them for crying out loud. Right. And we don't have security issues like this. Right. And, you know, me responding as a QRF with the background that I had, hey, I'm great at bandaging you up. And I'll return fire first, which is a first-line medical treatment. But uh, I have <laughs> no ambition to take on 25 local tribal members that are upset they're not being paid. So that one we got out of um, fortunately well, but building up to that point was a little bit intense. And all the rest of the stuff. I mean, if you're hanging out in Kandahar, after a while you get used to the sirens going off all night long and the secondary explosions, and you sleep through it. So that's not a big deal. <laughs> um, you know, I, we were shot at, and the only two times I've been injured was during attacks, and it was indirectly, one because of stupidity, and the other one because of, Okay, okay. I got injured twice because of stupidity, but they were, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was an actual event happening. I'm just trying right, to go for cover. Right. So, that, well, it's interesting. It's interesting yeah. you mentioned that because, uh, the, you know, about the people being paid. I mean, I've talked about this with other people. Yeah. 
both on and off the show. And there's so many things that go into making a successful private security campaign on a project over there. Aside from, you know, call it what you will, but for lack of better terms or however you want to phrase it, uh, respecting the local culture and trying to make friends with them and get them to understand that you're there for them and you'll help them out as best you can. And one of the big things, and it began about the time that they started the APPF over there, for those who don't know, the Afghan Public Protection Force. Um, and I, from what I've heard, I mean, I hear both stories that they, it's still around and it isn't, but that was a big, one of the great many problems that we saw over there was their people that were under that umbrella not being paid and it caused all kinds of problems for us over there. Did it not? And you, and you spoke of one of them. Oh yes. Yes. No, it's even their own government was cheap. They would give them boots that would last about two to three months. I mean, (laughs) that's what we had. We had APPF forces and Kabul police forces, and that's what we were oversight of advisors for. And they, the equipment was shoddy, terrible equipment. I would bring back boots with me after going stateside and and I collect all the boots that I can, which is tough to find combat boots in size four. (laughs) <laughs> maybe six and eight. I mean, it's very difficult, believe it or not. Right. Um, it was small feet, you know, so I, I bring back all that I could. And they were just given poor equipment and poor training. They were supposed to be vetted for training, yet they didn't even know how to use their own weapons. Uh, the most basic police or military tactics for weapons use and whatnot was not given to them. They're told we're vetted. My uh, bodyguard was uh, allegedly he was gone one day. They, I, so what happened to him? He goes, yeah, we think maybe he was Taliban. Well, OK, mm. good call. Um, you know, so there's a few problems. But then again, some of my best friends, I managed to get five APPF members, uh, captain, major, my interpreter, my driver and one other uh, are now stateside with uh, special immigration visas, and that took years. I think one's dead. I haven't heard from him in a few years. Uh, I don't think he quite made it, but, uh, you know, you get embedded with them, and they work their asses off to keep me alive and, and vice versa, and I trained them the best I could, so we'd all stay alive. Right. So I, they're great people, but uh, if you don't treat them right, you don't give them the right equipment, well, yeah, they're not going to work for you. They're not going to help you out. And I had people from other contracts come to our base and said, wow, your APPF rocks here. These guys got their shit together, and we were proud of that fact. Right. Yeah, and, and all those things are very important, and and uh, to a great extent, they go unnoticed um, until and, and except for those people that come to your AO and they go, wow, like you just said. Um, I mean, there. You know, I can't tell you countless times, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, where you know doing the little things like taking them water, having a conversation with them, showing them little things when they're having problems with the computer, um, you know, prop, making sure that, that their attire was properly done, showing them just basics on shooting, how to handle, you know, placement and one thing or another. Uh, all those things made a huge difference and in, show, in showing in your actions uh, that you were indeed concerned about them and for them their safety, their livelihoods, their families, because these guys and yeah. sometimes gals, um, oftentimes when they're working with us, uh, they have put themselves in a precarious situation because over there, everybody where they live, everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows who they work for. Everybody knows where they go and where they and how they get there and how they get back. These guys are under constant scrutiny 
and their lives are in jeopardy just for working with us. And so going out of our way, doing those little things can make a huge difference between living and dying over there. Oh, I agree. I mean, you trust them as far as you can trust anyone. But if you're a good person in the end, you know, you can't do anything more than that. And I had the nice advantage of being the doc. So not only did I, you know, treat them for a bazillion different things, um, you know, that was an advantage that gave us a little bit of a camaraderie that, you know, a little bit of a face to face time. And I got some respect. I had one guy who who had an oozing injury ever since he was injured during the Soviet Afghan war. And the stories these guys could tell if my interpreter was, you know, efficient enough in that venue, it's, it's just amazing. And he's still injured from it. Mm. So, you know, but you rely on them. Uh, you know, that's, that's my lifeline. You, you live outside the wire there. And if the shit hits the fan, that's, those are the people who are going to back you up. And at one time they did back me up and took care of things. And I was surprised. At a, so, you know, um, I learned oh, yeah. a lot from them. Yeah. And, and, and they'll, and, Depending on this, I mean, there's situations. So depending on the situation, the circumstances and how well you've gotten to know people and how well they trust you, um, sometimes they'll be the first ones to let you know that something's going to happen. It's on its way. Um, and other times they'll stand <laughs> up between you and them. You know, I'm yeah. just, you know, I mean, so 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 people from other countries, just because we fought them in the first Gulf War, second Gulf War, um, you can't trust these people. You can't trust them. Well, that's a. That's a blind blanket statement, and to some extent, maybe there's there's some truth to it when you're in offensive operations. But the fact of the matter is, when we're fighting a civilian war, or when we're over there as private civilians representing the United States of America on a private contract, um, there's a lot more that goes into it, and it almost becomes quasi-diplomatic. Uh, it, it does, and that's one thing I, I didn't like in, on a CONUS environment is people go, well, why are you there? I mean, they don't like us. They don't want us in their country. Do you know that empires have failed – um, taking over Afghanistan. Uh, this is GWAT, man. We're not there to take over the country. We're there to assist them, defend themselves against uh, insurgents. That, that we're not there to, to uh, conquer. Uh, it's a totally different thought process there. And they want our assistance. As far as I'm concerned, the people we work with wanted our help. They wanted to be trained. They wanted to be us to do. <laughs> they wanted us to do a lot of what they didn't want to do. Um, but we're there for support, and if we had left any time sooner than, well, I don't know when we can't leave, really, but uh, it would have caused problems. And right. I got, you know, we bonded while we were there. It was, a, it was tough for me to leave. And you're right, you have to have, um, you have to help them. You can't treat them. I, I had to send home one guy. He was a, a South African Special Forces, and he he just did not have patience with the Afghans at all whatsoever. And one of the uh, Officers came up to me and said, you need to send him home. He's not good. He's bad. And I said, I'm working on him. I'm working on him. We're trying to tone him down. And he goes, no, no, you send him home or we'll kill him. Hmm. All right, I'll get him a flight tomorrow. <laughs> he's out of here. Thank you for those kind words and being so direct on that one. Right. So we, we sent him home right away. And there's some other things, too, to where, you know, we had an event where a lieutenant in the forces, Afghan forces, and his minions were trying to steal a generator. <clears throat> worth a whole lot of money and got busted for it by one of our people and which is great you can't call the neighbor the, the same tribe to come in and, and arrest the same tribe um, right you've got to, not... <laughs> no not gonna work that, <laughs> no. that won't go over at all so you gotta call the neighboring and they're, they're happy to, to arrest somebody else so uh <laughs> they all took him out the lieutenant was released though and the uh, advisor oh. 
who um, who busted them all. He went on leave, came back, and I said, hey, welcome back. Hope you had a good leave. Oh, and by the way, here's your ticket. You're gone. Um, hmm. There's apparently a warrant out for your arrest. We heard it through some side uh, um, side communication. Somebody gave us a heads up. The lieutenant's still kind of pissed, and uh, you can't come in back in country, otherwise they're going to take you and he went bye bye. So you got to be careful there. It's they're not all. It's not all friends. You know, there's a whole lot of corruption there. If that's not uh, news to anybody else, <laughs> right? Well, it's, and that no, and and you know, I mean, just corruption, the culture, everything about it. They, you know, it's um. And you touched upon it earlier when you talked about uh, if you're living, residing in an area, a building, a house, tent, whatever, you, whatever you're in. Off base or outside of a uh, a, a friendly uh, fortified base, whether it's a fob, a cob, or cop, what have you, uh, that takes on a whole different um, sensation. I mean, because you are living in amongst around the populace, and yeah. and and the challenges, um, you know, because we are defensive, we're not offensive. Uh, I mean, you've got to really Go out of your way to make friends with the local populace, because um, let's face it, they you know they will turn on you if you treat them wrong. But if you treat them right, when you're living out there and you're traveling, you're driving from point to point. Uh, I mean, you can avoid an ambush just because they like you. Yeah, don't don't be pushing your luck. There's no reason to be an asshole when you're over there. Uh, it's just you're, you're tempting fate at that routine. Right. And. Uh, I have a tendency to smile when I get nervous and uh, one mm. of the Afghans, you know, they, they like me smiling. I smiled a lot. He <laughs> goes, you know, we have a saying in Afghanistan, uh, if you have nothing to give, uh, give a smile, mm. which, which saved my ass quite a few times. I think in, in Iraq, they say he who smiles too much is a simpleton. So, you know, it's all country dependent, uh, but uh <laughs> Be careful where you're at, but, you know, and they're good people, uh, and I treat them as best I could. The nice thing is, is Amazon delivers anywhere in the world, basically, and, mm. you know, I, they needed supplies. I'd get it to them. They, they wouldn't even get holsters for their pistols. Here you go. Mm. Here's a, a Sigma pistol by Smith & Wesson. They can't even, I don't even think they're legal to own in the United States, but here you mm. go. Here's, here's your pistols, and they're walking around. Every once in a while, I hear this thud on the floor in, in one of the rooms, and it's, you know, some officer dropped his pistol on the ground, and, you know, you listen to that so many times and you're like, OK, we're going to fix this. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, that's um, that is that wasn't I, you know, that's something that I'm, I've thought of, but, you know, frequently forget about is that uh, there was a time when uh, you'd start seeing UPS, FedEx, DHL running right. around out there and you're going to <laughs> talk about <laughs> surreal. It's like, where am I? <laughs> yeah. It's like, who did you screw over to get that FedEx driver one? And uh, yeah, I mean, you can get anything. It's just. Sometimes people don't understand it, even even as a, you know, for the Afghans, we had ways to get equipment in. So I I, I ended up buying all my NCOs and, and officers uh, for APPF and whatnot, uh, holsters for all their pistols, just to keep them from dropping and killing me. Mm. Um, but they thought I was a great guy for doing it. Um, right. And it, it, it helps in other things, too, because I guarantee you, by the time they pull it out of that Serpa holster to do anything bad, I'm already about three seconds ahead of them. So. Mm. <laughs> There was right. an ulterior motive there, too. It's nicely, neatly tucked in. Um, so I, I had a little bit of a heads up just in case. But uh, it yeah, was, and it's, it's not that these people don't want to learn this stuff. 
it's not that they don't want to be shown it. It's just that no few people take the time um, to do that and do it in a manner that's not degrading. Yes. Oh, goodness gracious. Yes. And understanding how it works. I mean, you know, the cultural differences are just tremendous, too. I mean, I, I could beat you to a bloody pulp. And if you said some slurs towards my family, you're actually at fault now. And if I try to fix it the way uh, Americans would fix a fight or a dispute, uh, I'd cause all holy hell. So you got to bring in the families and the families talk and find out a nice way to uh, respond together and how to work out this problem between the two people. Uh, the captain brought me in and said, uh, uh, this guy here is a specialist. Basically, he won't listen to my orders. He goes, but he goes, he's from a different tribe. He doesn't think he has to listen to the captain. Uh, so I get brought in to basically mediate it. And they will listen to me, though. Now, if I was an ass, that'd probably be a little bit different, but uh, that's how disputes were solved a lot of times. So it was good that we had the advisors there. And it also right. made our expats feel a little more comfortable having that, you know, liaison. We were the guardian angels for the base as well. Um, you know, we get, trust everybody and trust no one at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, you're, so in your contracting, it's uh, time over overseas. Uh, can you speak a little bit about the uh, last contract you worked on over there before you called it quits? Was it public, private, uh, and what was that like? Last one. When was that? That was 2017. Um, what was that? That was back with Fleur. They were dumb enough to hire me again. <laughs> and at first, at first, I think I was going to Somalia for detail. And then uh, they had uh, – the Afghan first program there in Bagram, Baf, and they had a kid who'd been working there in the Afghan first program on base. They had lots of Afghans. I don't know what the numbers were, 2,000. Don't quote me on it. But uh, during a marathon, a kid walks up in between some civilian contractors. One of them was my boss's boss uh, on the medical side for there and some military uh, personnel and clacked off a vest, killed uh, – the, the guy from Fleur and a few others, and uh, mm. that was a Charlie Foxtrot from the get-go, and they brought in, the, you know, the Army's medical teams and whatnot, and they said uh, something went sideways along there on the lines, but the Air Force was in charge of the Craig Joint Theater Hospital, and they decided that, you know, dust-off stays, Army-wise dust-off would stay, but they're going to cancel the contract. I'm not sure how this works with the military, but they're going to get rid of the 6-8 whiskeys. So I asked Floor, can you do combat medicine? Can you do tactical medicine? Well, Floor's never done that before. And when you say tactical, that implies that you're armed. Combat implies that you're um, offensive armed. And in this case, we weren't armed at all. Um, so Floor goes, yeah, sure, we can do that. So they, they kicked out the 6-8 whiskeys, and they brought in private military through Floor, but you're not armed but you're responding just like the six eight whiskeys would which caused a little bit of a logistical nightmare i mean you responded to everybody civilian or military um you also transported um prisoners um transported a a from who came in from outside the wire so there were some definitive threats there so we had to design and develop that program and that's what i was brought in to try to take what was there and improve it with a private military basically. And that was, uh, 
it was successful as far as I'm concerned. At first, they're kind of wondering, you know, who are these guys and gals? And it's a definitely a civilian mindset. Half of our people were just the civilian medics, and they wanted that. They wanted advanced cardiac life support medics responding in ambulances, just like they would stateside. Mm. And they wanted TCCC medics that responded during attacks. And we had to do the best of both worlds and keep everybody happy. And I think it was quite the successful program. You know, we had to meld together both people with military background who are now contractors and people who were, you know, just civilian medics and, and make it work. And we were based out of the Craig Joint Theater Hospital there. And then another base over on a was it Warrior Compound on the east east side. And, it, you know, it was busy. But uh, I enjoyed that detail. Um, that was my, that was my last uh, last time there. Uh, Garda had hit me up in 2000 and when was that? 18. I lied through my teeth. 2019. Yeah. Um, and uh, my intent was to go back with Garda to do. I got approved biowise for the PSS paramedic routine. So that was my plan for last year. And in the end, my current employer and we discussed some things. I decided to stay. So I'm, you know, doing the uh, um, CONUS thing now and uh, opted not to go back over. Hmm. So, you know, you touched upon something that uh, uh, about uh, that reminded me about the multiple hats. Uh, so often um, our primary title, whatever our primary job based on our title, our rank, if you will, our job description um, that's nice, but frequently, if not nearly always, we end up wearing multiple hats um, and having to do multiple jobs. And until and unless your reputation precedes you, even then, uh, people, you know, you come to a new place and, and people, you are circumspect. They, they, they want to know, you know, are you really uh, what we hear? Can you do the job? And so you do spend a certain amount of time, you know, trying to live up that, to that expectation. And uh, it's a sense of relief when when uh, you finally realize that they go, yeah, yeah, you did a good job. Um, yeah. And you, and you said it perfectly time. Um, you, you know, you always are concerned with the person that gives you the five, 10 minute resume about themselves. <laughs> when you First meet them and you figure right. about 50 percent of that's incorrect and 25 percent of it's wrong. <laughs> so, you know, time you have to work with them. And that's that's a lot of it. The people when you get called back for contracts, they worked with you once. And if they're dumb enough to call you back, they know what your flaws are. They know what your good points are. And, right. And you, you prove yourself that way. Right. Right. Um, so let me ask you, you know, your transition when you what was it like? I, um, you know, I've tried to describe it to people and I've, I don't think I've ever been <laughs> successful in doing it. But the first time you 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 get in country and you get out of the airport, it's no longer air conditioned and it's not all tourist kind of stuff. Now you get out there and bam, you're in the sun. It's it's hot. And I mean, can you remember? Can you describe, articulate I mean, what was that feeling? What was that sensation when you first stepped off the plane and went, oh, my God? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I I don't remember it, but I'll answer your question a little bit differently. <laughs> I do know that as, as time got closer, I did start to get a bit more nervous. I looked and reviewed every single flipping YouTube video on people in Afghanistan that I could to get a bit of a, a heads up. Uh, uh, sit rep, if you will, of, of what I was going to walk into. Uh, you know, no one wants to be that guy who's totally dumbfounded and clueless. And unfortunately, that's how I ended up in country. 
is pretty mm. much clueless to what happened. But they've got a good system to prepare you, um, give you a heads up on things. And they do that on purpose. Um, so I, I'm not quite sure how I looked when I landed, but I, I did hire a guy later on. And I'll, I'll tell you, if, I'm pretty sure I probably looked like him. So I, I went out on tarmac and, you know, they all come in cattle wise. They're on these buses, all these newbies. And they've never been, you know, this guy is civilian medic his whole career. Never been anywhere outside of the state for all I know. And, and they plop him in the middle of Bath and I drive out in the tarmac. I think I'll pick him up. That way he doesn't have to hang around with the other 300 people and go through cattle call. I drive up and the air ops person walks up to me and she smiles and she goes, which one's yours? And I went, the tall, pale looking guy who looks like he's lost, wondering what the hell he's doing here, <laughs> looking clueless. She's like, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, we've been watching him. So I'll take him. So I'm relatively sure that was me when I've got boots on the ground there. And, right. and um, you know, it, it takes you a while to get used to it. And, and after a while, it's almost addicting. You know, right. it was a tough decision not to go back because you, you can do something. I mean, you, you definitely can help when you're there. And and that's the best part about it. Right. And and the camaraderie and the friendship and oh, goodness, the, yes. the, those, those sorts of things, um, they I'm not sure I can articulate it properly, so I'm not going to try. But I mean, it is a completely different feeling and sense when you're in country uh, amongst your peers, working with people um, and getting to know them. That that feeling, that sensation is completely different than when you come home, whether it's on rotation or whatever. Um, and, and I think that's part of the reason why why we want to go back there, in addition to many other reasons. I think it's different. Um, there's two types of contracting. There's contracting and those are the HVAC people. Those are the clinical medical people. They're the electricians. They're, that's, you know, the log cap type contractors that are there. And then there's the what we call the private military type contractors, those who are armed. In my personal opinion, I think the two are distinctly different. Yes, I they actually, are. Yeah, had brotherhood with with uh, brothers and sisters who are armed overseas doing the private military gig, and we, we're all we had. Your contractors. You, yep. You know, rarely can you call somebody else up for help. You're pretty much on your own, and you had to rely on that person, you know, watching your six, the, the one person in the vehicle with you. And without that, and I, I think the brotherhood was far more intense with that. The other one, half the time I didn't trust uh, the other person. They're always out to get you. They're, they're, they're sneaky. They don't understand the camaraderie uh, in the areas that I dealt with it. And, you know, that part takes a little bit of a it's a little bit of a learning curve with that. I was almost disgruntled a little bit. My first tour there, not from the the terrible living conditions, which I actually didn't mind at all. But uh, <laughs> it was the personalities that that you just had to watch out for. And that part I, I didn't like so much to go back right. over. It's always I'd rather do the, you know, the PMC type stuff. Right. Well, yeah. Well, uh, and I've had that discussion with a number of guys. I'm sure you have too. you know, what's a PMC, what's a PSC. And and some people still refer to it as PMC, paramilitary or private military. And and sure enough, there's that stuff around the world. But for the most part, what we lived in, what we experienced uh, were private security contractors because we were really defensive yeah. and we didn't do anything offensive. But, you know, that term got tossed around it. You know, it's a it's a comfortable term that for whatever reason has become comfortable. Um but yeah, I mean that that brotherhood, um, not to be sexist, you know, sisterhood. I mean, we knew plenty of gals over there um, that that we got along with great, and they fit in just fine. 
but there is something that's that's hard to describe because we are a small percentage of people yeah. that are playing on the contracts over there and and you're right for the most part we know that if when we look out and we can spot one of us we know you know that we can count on that person to help us out if we have any problems at all whatsoever um so l- let me ask you darren um now that you now that you're now that you're out of contracting um you know whether you go back again or not um but i mean how has your life changed now um as a result of your experiences um how has it changed you uh what are you up to these days and 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 what's different are you glad to be done uh okay Well, I've been in my, let, let's start with the first one. You know, how has your life changed? Now that you're done, how has your life changed? Well, I don't know. I, I'm fortunately my current employer probably won't be listening to this podcast anytime in the future. But uh, I, uh, I've been with my current. Uh, I went back into the fire service, and um, it's my old department. Um, damn near the same department. They've done some merging and unmerging and and things like that over the last ten years. But again, they were dumb enough to want to bring me back for a role. And I, I said, yes, but uh, the one thing they were told is, and I told them this myself, I'm a flight risk, <laughs> plain <Yeah>. and simple. <laughs> Every time there's some insurgency or some disaster. I mean, I, 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 in 2018, I was in Puerto Rico and uh, uh, the Virgin Islands, uh, you know, doing that routine as, as a private security for uh, subcontractors through FEMA. You know, it's when you hear these things go on in the world, first of all, you want to be there to help. Second of all, you miss the action. And, and even though it's miserable living conditions, you don't really think about that much. And then you get the phone call. Hey, Doc, uh, we need you on the team. Uh, I have a job. <laughs> so every, now, every now, you're talking about painful. last year, that, that, that uh, disaster that happened as a result of the hurricane down there. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember getting uh, several emails and phone calls and – um, for reasons I won't go into. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what you just said, I wanted to, man. I really yes. did, but I didn't. I, and it's it was tough. The only reason I got to go is, well, I got demoted to go. Uh, I need another surgery. Uh, my foot was just all whacked um, from an event. And uh, so they sent me home in September. And then I got a call from a buddy. Yeah, three guys, they're, they're former frogmen, and they do the contracting gigs on stuff. And they said, Hey doc, we need it. We need a doc on this detail. Um, what are you doing? And I said, Well, I'm getting ready to go in for foot surgery. So, oh, when's that? 35 days. Well, can you drive? Yeah. <laughs> can you shoot? Sure. Because all right, your plane leaves in four hours. <laughs> Sweet. Where am I going? Well, we'll give you that details in a bit. You're, you're, uh, Virgin Islands. So you know, so, and, and that I like. I mean, I'm ready for that. that and right. You want to be able to sit there at your house and, and hang around and, uh, you know, watch the news and hang out by the pool and relax and just wait for something to go to. And so we did that routine. And the same thing happened. Go back to the surgery and the, the doc goes, all right, uh, we're going to put you through rehab. OK, cool. I go, does it matter where I do the rehab? She just looks at me and shakes her head. And she goes, where are you going now? I go, Puerto Rico. <laughs> She goes, will you do rehab 
Yes, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Wink, wink. She signs me off. Yeah. So off to Puerto Rico you go. It's supposed to be a 45-day gig and a 60-day gig. And eight months later, I probably should have left sooner. But uh, anyway, yeah. So, you know, you see these things. And the Bahamas kicked into play. Yeah, no, I can't go. You know, civil unrest, people are calling up, you know. So that part is tough to give it up. And now that I'm in this very mundane job, wait a minute, you're in the fire department. Well, it's yeah, it's not always exciting. So the two just seemed a little bit different. So I'm trying to acclimate. Right. I'm, I'm more or less trying to make this job <laughs> be, be like my overseas job. So, yeah, right. they're a little suspicious. I walked in wearing a, a navy blue combat shirt. Chief looks at me and <laughs> sees I got Velcro patches on my sleeves and looks at the other assistant chief and goes, huh, looks sharp and walks yeah. off. Bingo. Okay, I checked that box. Now I, I look it and walk it and I maybe talk it, but so you know I'm trying to do it. Now I got the active shooter response program uh, details, and then I'm working on uh, getting on board the critical response unit with the neighboring sheriff's department as their uh, tactical medic. So I think my end all solution was is try to make my conus life <laughs> as close as I can to the uh, Oconus life. Uh, so I can, you know, be happy with where I'm at and don't want to keep going other places to to do these things because you, you, you want to be there. I mean, I don't know if there's any other way to explain it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it is something that is, we can do the best we can. And some of us do better jobs of articulating than others, but you can't truly understand it until you've done it right. Uh, yeah. and more, and more than just once, um, you know, I mean, there are those guys and gals that, you know, do one rotation, maybe six months a year. Um, but it's pretty rare, you know, you know, it's pretty rare to find guys that have been doing it more than three years. Um, you know, they're further and fewer between uh, these days. Uh, contracting the way it is, is uh, you find those longer lives guys than you used to. But uh, so, Darren, is there um, in, as we get uh, as we're approaching the wrap it up? part here is there anything um that you would like to tell people or leave them with um anything that uh, you'd like to that you haven't yet said well there's a few short things left uh, that i will say as far as contracting uh, don't do it for the glory don't do it for the money i mean while there may be good money it ain't the gunslinging days it ain't as good but watch your finances more, more guys and gals go over there and make the big money and they're living month to month when you're making X number of dollars, which is three times, four times, 10 times what they made uh, back at home. They seem to just waste it all. It, it, it's a huge problem as far as I'm concerned. And don't screw it up, you know, save that money, invest that money. Don't uh, um, do a lot of contractors do and just waste it. Uh, it, it it's, it doesn't, it's not healthy for one thing. Um, divorces are an issue contracting. So you got to weigh that into the picture as well. You know, you don't get to come home maybe as often as, uh, some of the military do because of some staffing issues. Sometimes you get to come home more often, but if you've never done it before, if you're in the military and you've deployed, you understand a bit what's going on. Great. Don't let the money go to your head. Um, in that respects, there's a uh, very few and far between jobs out there for contracting. In my opinion, the jobs that are still available that you don't have to compete with or worry about your jobs is for downsizing and whatnot, because we're not it's not not as many jobs out there as there used to be. But uh, if you're a medic, 
um, a DDM or sniper or canine, those are still jobs that are out, out there for the uh, private security and whatnot that uh, um, will always be there as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it may not be in high capacity, but if it's your first detail, first tour, first time overseas, don't be that guy or gal. Shut up. <laughs> listen. Do what you're told. And as time goes on, you'll know what to do and what to say and, and, and how to interact. Um, right. You know, if you're with a good shooting team and they deem that you're not safe or you're, you're a problem child. They'll send you home because no one wants to be with that guy or gal. So it weeds itself out in that respect. Just and be careful because acclimating to come back home. Military has a system in place. We don't have a system in place. You know, if you're feeling uh, suicidal, if you're having other issues, financial problems or whatnot in the private contracting world, there is nobody to support us when we get home. That's it. Right. You, your family, um, your spouse. Um, when, when I would come home on, on leave, I would I, I learned the hard way. I would take two weeks and go um, hang out at, at the vacation house before I would go back to see my daughter. Because for those first two weeks, it's a little, you're a little bit different. And it took me about a year to realize that. So acclimating to, you know, one life overseas in a war zone compared to your home life is a little bit different. Some people do it much better. I found it better for me to, to relax and uh, just spend some time back home to get integrated a little bit first. And um, have a your, your medical coverage isn't great. <laughs> what they give you, uh, you know, be 100% covered and everywhere, everywhere on the entire planet, 100% of your medical is covered. Well, I don't know how many of you have done, been injured and had to go to other hospitals in other countries, but uh, I have. But Thailand wasn't my first choice to have a surgery, so <laughs> uh, um, Dubai wasn't any better. And, and you come home for those surgeries, but your medical, they don't, for the most part, this is what you got to look into see what is covered because they would only cover 80% of anything medically done back in the States. Well, after about a hundred and some thousand dollars worth of some reconstructive surgeries, 80% uh, doesn't cover a lot when you're having the right to check for 30 some thousand dollars. So those things are, are, are things that people don't really realize until they, you know, get there and experience it and come back and take the taxes out. That right. No one wants to go over there. Yeah. yeah, take the taxes out. Don't just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to walk away with $118,000 tax-free. Tax wow, this is great. Don't take any taxes out. Just give me all my cash. Wonderful, until you get injured or something goes sideways. And I had to write that $34,000 check to the IRS because I didn't plan appropriately. So I, I learned that right. lesson my, my, my first year that, uh, yeah. It's better to have a backup plan. Fortunately, I didn't spend it all on something, but it was a hard check to write in any case. So, and, you know, do it if you get the opportunity and you want to do it um, by all means. Right. Yeah, there's there's a we won't go into it uh, here, uh, but there are uh, there are still an awful lot of channels, for lack of a better term, uh, where people can find out who's hiring and what they're hiring for and one thing or another. I mean, it's out there. Yeah. Uh, right. So, uh, all right, Darren, uh, I want to thank you, man. I really do uh, appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on the show and talk with us. 
about your time and experiences as a private security contractor and you know your life um, in a nutshell there. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, no worries, Scott. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. And it's uh, good to chat with you again. Uh, like I said, it's a brotherhood that lasts a lifetime. So it's uh, good to keep your friends that you meet downrange. It really is. All right. Well, everybody out there, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Thank you to all of our listeners and those who have spent their time and efforts supporting us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, keep it real.